Super Talk Mississippi Media Production. Toyota Brookhaven services all makes and models. That could be why we were voted best service department the past two years. Come see why. Exit 40 Brookhaven or online at toyotabrookhaven.com. Great service, great savings. At Toyota Brookhaven, we deliver. Howdy, howdy. It's Rhino here, and I wanted to say thank you for listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. everyone and welcome to Midday Super Talk Mississippi. I'm your host Gerard Gibbert along with Rhino in the Element Wealth Studios guiding you through the middle of your day with facts, fodder and fine music on this hump day. We are here. We have made it. It is the middle of the week my friend and uh, we're just rocking right along here. We're kicking things off this morning with Dr. Dan Edney, the state health officer with the Mississippi Department of Health. Good morning, Dr. Edney. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. My pleasure. I appreciate the opportunity. Yes, sir. So the uh, the state of the healthcare industry, and in particular the financial condition of the hospitals in the state of Mississippi, has been uh, in focus, shall we say, over the last year at a minimum, uh, what's what's the latest? What are you hearing from uh, the hospitals out there, those responsible for making the numbers work in particular? I mean, it, it you still have to worry about that, even though the primary business, of course, is curing disease and taking care of people and getting them healthy and, and preventing uh, disease. And, oh, that's and what bad, it's all about. Yeah, prevention, of course. I know you're a big proponent of that and very outspoken about that. And there's so many great ways to do that these, day, these days. It's just a matter of execution, I right. guess, and adherence. But what's the status? How, how are we looking? Oh, it's a mixed bag. Um, still a, a, a lot of severe challenges, uh, especially in the Delta and Southwest Mississippi of we don't re- the Gulf Coast is in a healthier environment. Uh, Pine Belt tends to be doing better. The far northeastern corner of North Mississippi is is doing well. The Memphis suburbs, you know, so it's kind of sporadic. Okay, and but no one is knocking it out of the park right now, and we're we have a really a spectrum of hospitals that literally see their drop dead date ahead of them if something does not happen. Financially speaking. Correct. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, hospitals that are doing okay, but they're burning cash reserves, which, you know, they're still significant, but you can't sustain that indefinitely. Uh, all the way to hospitals that are doing okay and making a little money. Nobody, I mean, at, right now is not the time to be investing unless you're buying low and you know, Mississippi Healthcare, and the thing I, I try to remind people is, it's not just rural hospitals, especially it's rural healthcare 
you know, our doctors, our providers are in, in rural Mississippi are struggling. Um, it's very hard to recruit into rural Mississippi right now. The nursing shortage is impacting the whole state, but it's hyper-acute in the rural areas. And, you know, patients in rural Mississippi are struggling to have access to care the way they should, the way you and I do in, in you know, uh, more affluent areas of the state. What strikes me about your overview there, uh, Dr. Eddy, is that when you talk about, well, there's some in this area of the state that are faring okay, but there's some in this other areas of the state that are really in in very challenging circumstances. What's the distinction? What what makes one, uh, I guess, successful, if you could call it that, or certainly not on the brink of failure, and one that's uh, it seems imminent? Yeah, and it, it's multifactorial, as you well know, because I know you, you study uh, this. It when you look at the regions of the state, when you look at the Mississippi Delta, the infrastructure is struggling. Uh, the investment in health care is very low. The population shift is negative, so out-migration from the Delta. Hmm. And the Delta has the highest rate of uninsured right. for the state with the highest rate of uninsured. So right. the Delta is like the concentration of all the struggles we're having in health care is is magnified there. But then I have to remind folks, southwest Mississippi is right behind them. You know, we, Natchez, Macomb area, do, doing okay, not great, but okay. The rest of southwest Mississippi is struggling mightily. And one way um, I'm able to watch that is I'm, as I watch what are happening to services being provided, not just by, by hospitals, but by physicians and other providers, and you know, as I see hospitals, multiple hospitals in the Delta, at least one, probably two or three in southwest Mississippi that are shifting to downgrade to rural emergency hospital status, that speaks volumes when they are giving up on inpatient work. Okay. It's, so is it a function uh, – when you, when you uh, describe it that way, the first thing that comes to mind is uh, I, I think about uh, just the income levels of the population. Right. And so what what you're saying is that areas of the state where the income levels are are low are where the health care institutions are most struggling. And that seems to add up. So I'm assuming that if you look at, say, the Gulf Coast, maybe pockets of northeast Mississippi, I know the hospital in that area seems to be doing better uh, than most. And then, uh, of course, here in central Mississippi, kind of have a mixed bag as well. We, um, we do. And if you look at just, say, the Metro Jackson yeah. hospitals, um, you know, uh, very mixed bag. Well, they're not doing great either, not, honestly. Ab- absolutely. I mean, they're upside down cash flow-wise. And, you know, Merit Health has made no secret. That yeah. The only reason they're still, you know, at Merit Central is they have to be by contract, yeah. by lease. Um you know, and and it's this is a, a dynamic shift, so it's it's not static by any means. But that you know, when things are dynamic, it means it can move both ways. So there, you know, there are solutions, and I, I I'm optimistic that some of the things the legislature uh, did last session uh, hopefully will at least stabilize the situation or 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 stabilize those who are in most danger right now. So. I see a lot of finger pointing. I've, I've shared with you before. I, I'm uh, acquaintances with a lot of folks in the industry that are higher levels and some of the big hospitals in the state. 
And there's a lot of finger pointing. What I mean by that is it's a, it's a unique industry in that there are a lot of parties involved in the transactional side right. of things because you have a third party payer, right? And that just hopefully, grows, hopefully. You're right, right. Hopefully, <laughs> hopefully, you have a payer period, right? right? But it, but that complicates, and that's unique. Most other industries, I can't think of another one, honestly, where you have that situation where there's another party inserted in the transaction. In this case, healthcare insurers, but the healthcare insurers seem to point to the to the medical providers as their problems for uh, causing their woes financially speaking and then you got the healthcare providers that say well the insurance companies are making all the money uh, and as a result we just seem to be at a, a standoff not really solving the problem although i i saw a change um, in tune of and and definitely tone as the as the conversation progressed through the session this year that really I think everybody understands that we have a problem as an addiction doctor. Step one is admit we have a problem. Sure. Um, and I think everybody gets it. Okay. You know, we I, have, I would agree with you. We there, have a problem. There seems to be more acknowledgement that there is a, a fundamental structural problem. And as you well know, it's not limited to Mississippi. No. I mean, it's a problem across the country. That That's right. What I do from you know my job is to look at population health and to look at how things are you know, for our entire 2.9 million population and i a lot of that i do by comparing our population to our region we're so far behind our region hmm. even though we have other areas of you know other states in our region who have challenges no one has the challenges that we have now, what do you attribute that to? Poverty drives everything in Mississippi. Um, you know, I, I I grew up in Greenville, and I was the youngest child of low-income Delta workers. Um, you know, so, you know, I've tasted it. You know, uh, didn't have health insurance until I graduated to actually went to work as an adult. You know, so, you know. And I was, we were not impoverished. We were low income, but we were not impoverished. We have such a high percentage of impoverished Mississippians that gets in the way of everything. It gets in the way of just simple public health measures. It gets in the way of having medical homes so that people can get their colonoscopies when they're 50. You know, we have too many diabetics and hypertensives walking around that don't have a clue they have it until they get sick. Um, you know, all of these, you know, poverty gets in the way of everything, you know, and there is no, you know, silver bullet for poverty except continue to improve our economic standing in the region as we have been working towards. But we are so far behind Alabama, Tennessee, even Arkansas. I mean, for Pete's sake, you know, when we're behind Arkansas. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, can you stick around? Sure. Yeah, we've got Dr. Dan Edney, the state health officer in the Element Well Studios. We'll continue this discussion about the state of the healthcare industry in Mississippi when we return. Gerard Gibbert. 
He keeps his classified documents right where they belong. Inside a Journey record jacket from the 1980s, Gerard Gibbert, Super Talk Mississippi. everyone we are live in the element well studios and we've got dr dan edney the state health officer we're just talking about the state of the the health care economy that's how it's referred to on a formal basis mm-hmm. when we're talking about the the national uh, health care industry the hce as i recall the acronym but we could apply that here within the borders of our state as well um there are some people honestly dr edney that that believe that um there's more to this story that the hospitals really aren't struggling financially, that they're like hiding something or that they're just overweighted with extraneous, unnecessary administrative costs to take its shed and fix everything. Well, certainly I agree that every organization should be constantly looking to uh, improve efficiencies and, and operate optimally in that perspective, but and, and they should be doing that. And if they're not, well, then shame on them. But we got a revenue problem. When I when I hear um, my various um, friends in the industry talk about, well, yeah, it's it's a lot of services that we get. We just don't get anything for. We get no compensation, no reimbursement. How does an industry make ends meet, produce a cash flow, when they're having to give away so much of their work product, and and they're mandated to, yeah. to give it away? Right. Um, True. So it's not. And they don't have a choice in the matter. In the old days, let's let's you know let's move back to healthier times and healthcare economics in general. Let's go back to 2010. Okay, uh, you know. If you go back to the 1980s, there was so much money flowing through healthcare, through just from Medicare. You know, those are back in the days when Medicare was the golden goose, and nobody ba- had balance books back then. There was plenty <laughs> of money. Yeah. And then the 90s is when managed care started coming in, and Medicare started tightening down. And then in the early 2000s and into the teens, it got worse and worse. You know. Healthcare always balanced their books based off private insurance and Medicare. Yeah. And that's how they could take care of the uninsured and Medicaid. Those days are gone. Medicare barely pays the bills. It may be, maybe a 1% margin, maybe. Medicaid does not fully pay the bills, but it's better than nothing. So when I, when I hear this argument that Medicaid makes things work, you don't understand healthcare economics because we're talking about putting money into a bucket that's empty. That's that's better than nothing. And you have uh, insurers like Blue Cross that now dominate the market who they don't negotiate with anybody. Right. And you know, it's, it's a whole different economic world, and those margins aren't there like they used to be. So is it accurate to say then that uh, the hospitals in Mississippi – that are let's say doing better than others. It's it's uh, could be attributed to the fact that much of the care they provide 
is covered, reimbursed yes. by private insurance as opposed to Medicare, Medicaid. And, of course, uh, uh, they typically have a, a low amount of unreimbursed care. That's right. We have it in the Delta. There are counties that have a 15% uninsured rate, and then the rest of it is virtually all Medicaid, Medicare with maybe 8% private insurance. Those numbers don't work for anybody. And we have areas of the state where you flip all that where you only – you know, have maybe four percent uninsured. Yeah, and Oxford is one, is it not? It is, and uh, in fact, Oxford. There are areas around the Delta that benefit from their location because there are those with private insurance who will leave the Delta to go get health care outside of the Delta. I see. Um, Oxford is one of those communities. Clarksdale's like a beeline. I got you. straight to Oxford, and you know, and that. But most of the state, you're looking at around 7 to 8% uninsured with a balance of private insurance about 7 to 8 maybe up to 12%. But again, Medicare, Medicaid filling in the middle. And Medicare, Medicaid just doesn't generate profit like they used to. So you've got, you've got to get it from private pay or private insurance to generate a profit. And now, I mean, uh, Health care providers, again, don't throw doctors and providers out of the mix. Um, everybody's looking at just being sustainable. Right. Well, uh, analyses I, I've read, and, and there are different ways to approach it, but sometimes show that uh, Medicare is, is upside down, that that's actually below cost. I mean, you said maybe a 1%. I've seen some that say it's actually below cost. Medicaid, I don't know if Medicaid ever covered costs. It was program. The, was not the intention. That wasn't the intention. It was to uh, you know, provide health insurance for the lowest income Americans and to provide some compensation to those who were providing that care. Yeah, for certain limited coverage groups. That's right. And Mississippi probably has one of the most limited coverage groups right. in the nation. Uh, you know, so um, we have to face the reality that economics and everything are different in the 21st century. But, you know, the the, the government money does not flow like it used to. Uh, the, our federal funders and everybody has to understand the feds dictate health care compensation in this country. They control everything. Yep. Uh, and, the, you know, the state does its part through our Medicaid match, which is – you know, our part is the lowest in the country. But the feds have, have made a decision. They're funding at the level they're going to fund. They're not pushing more revenue in, into the pipeline. Here's yeah. what's on the table. You can take what, what's available to you or not. They don't much care. And if you don't take it, then, you know, God bless. Go go do the best you can. Explain for the benefit of our audience, Dr. Edney, what disproportionate share payments are, the DSH payments. Yeah, the, the DISH payments historically made up for those areas of the state that had a higher burden of Medicaid patients and also to help with the uninsured uh, issue it, because, I mean, Oxford just doesn't have the same number of Medicaid patients that Clarksdale does. Right. And so to kind of balance it, you know, through the Medicaid program, especially the federal government would push uh, bonus. It's almost like bonus payments for taking care of that population to kind of balance the books somewhat. Right. To, to you know to keep you from being punished because you were seeing Medicaid and actually try to help you see Medicaid patients. So one thing I would recommend and that's gone way way down. It's gone down. Um, and in fact, 
I'll, I'll hit this in a minute. The Biden administration wanted it to go down even more. They did. And, and that was to force the states, the 11 remaining states that haven't expanded Medicaid, to expand. Uh, because that's something that I would recommend to the proponents of Medicaid to not just um, discuss the amount of money that would flow to the state. It's roughly a billion dollars, it's estimated, if we expanded Medicaid, which would just be adding a coverage group. That's something else I think is widely misunderstood. We're just talking about adding a coverage group, not increasing the amount that the state receives from the Fed for the existing coverage groups. It really doesn't do that. It primarily just... Um, adds a coverage group that's able-bodied adults with a certain income, low incomes. Yeah. But they would also there would also be a reduction of dish payments if we expanded Medicaid. So there's a net in there. It makes sense to me, Doctor Edney, that the proponents of Medicaid expansion would show us those figures so we know what the true net effect would be. Yeah, and, I'd be, and to be honest, I, I don't know. That's that's a great question. You know, kind of my philosophy is, you know. We have a, a revenue issue in the healthcare system in general. We can either put the money to the hospitals, or we can we can tie the resources to the individual patient, who will then choose where yeah. they want to go. Yeah, kind of a conservative principle is, you know, make the industry produce so that people will want to come to you by incentivize the 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 customer. Yeah, and for us, that's the patient. And right now, patients are just trying to get in wherever they can. I know you talked about this with uh, Paul Gallo a couple of weeks ago, but this grant program established mm-hmm. by the legislature, it, it was uh, subsequently determined that there's some strings attached because it's being funded by um, some federal COVID right. funds, and and for the most part, it it's designed to cover excess covid expenses and a lot of a lot of the hospitals said well we've already been reimbursed to cover for that so we don't really have access to this grant what's the status of that now it, it we're off to a good start we have as of yesterday 10 hospitals who have applied and they've pretty much gotten uh, they're working really well in the front end to get the right information to us that we need so we can process quickly uh, arpa funds as you know, are not meant to generate profit for anybody, right. but to kind of stabilize things. Yep. So there is a lot of with the applications we're seeing. There's a lot of opportunity to get okay. a lot of money out. Okay, 104 million. Yeah, I think was the amount of money. But that's a drop in the bucket uh, relative to the revenue losses that are being experienced. Yeah, I, I'm I'm glad to see it. It's going to be helpful. It, it doesn't fix the problem. Gotcha. Appreciate you coming in. Oh, Dr. my pleasure. Anytime. Good time. All right, we'll step aside for a break right here. Coming right back with more in the Element Well Studios. Covering the stories that matter most to Mississippians. Gerard Gibbert. Middays with Gerard. Super Talk Mississippi.
We are back in the Element Well Studios. We thank you so much for joining us. It's middays coming up at 11.05. Haley Fasakerly, the president and CEO of Entergy Mississippi, will get an update on the restoration efforts from the recent storm damage in the state. A lot of folks still without power, I know, I'm hearing. So we'll dig into that. And then at 12 o'clock today, 12.05, it's Dr. Mark Horn. You guys may have seen uh, reports of a shortage of various cancer drugs, chemotherapy drugs, etc. And I thought it made sense to get Dr. Horn on to give us a rundown of that and inform and educate. But we're in the Element Well Studios, and I really do appreciate Dr. Edney for for coming in and, and talking openly. Uh, about uh, the various challenges. I mean, it's his job, and I appreciate him coming in and and being willing to dig into these difficult matters and issues. He told me on the way out he wants to come in and talk about public health. You know, that's something that he has a passion for, and I appreciate the fact that he does. And so we definitely will get him on and we'll focus on that um, as a, a subject matter. It's a, it's a tough deal. It really is. There are no easy solutions to this problem. And I, I know Thomas pounds the drum on a daily basis. If it's admin cost, it's admin cost, it's admin cost. And I know other folks feel like, well, the hospitals, their problem is they're just mismanaged. And, and I get all that. Well, you could take a look at any organization, any private sector business as well, and, and find issues, find flaws, and say it's mismanaged. But what's different here, and they need to correct those, no doubt. And that's something you should constantly strive for and be working on. I, I mean, I know I did in my 33-year business career, but it, it's difficult. And you're constantly working on ways to cut costs, and achieve efficiencies and agility, streamline operations? Absolutely. All good businesses should do that, regardless of industry. And that applies to the healthcare industry as well, no doubt. The difference here that I think we have to recognize and acknowledge is that by law, healthcare institutions, healthcare providers, are required to deliver their service and their work product, whether they get paid or not. And in the case of Mississippi, we have the highest amount of uninsured, uncompensated care. That's because we have the highest uninsured rate, or close to it. And an outsized number of people in Mississippi on Medicaid without expanding Medicaid, without adding the additional coverage group. And as you heard Dr. Edney say, and it's no secret, this has been the case forever, the reimbursement of Medicaid is below cost, assuming you had zero admin costs, Thomas. Zero. None. And with the, in the case of Greenwood LaFleur Hospital, I've shared this before, I dug into their financial reports. It's available. They're, uh, I believe their auditor is the Horn Group, Horn CPA. I think I looked at the last five years. You could strip their admin cost, fire every single admin person, zero admin. They barely break even. 
That's how upside down it is. And that's because they have a high amount of uh, uninsured care or low insured care through Medicaid. They don't have enough patient care that is reimbursed through private insurance or out-of-pocket by the patient at the full cost. I'm not making excuses for them whatsoever. And I, and I do believe that because they are a county hospital, I do believe that they're probably a little less inclined to shed unnecessary duplicative staff. I do believe that. And I do believe in areas like Greenwood, where they're the largest employer, there's a tendency to hold up on making the hard decisions and releasing people and cutting jobs to save money. I absolutely do believe that. But I also cannot lose sight of the fact that they got a lot of people that receive care that don't pay and have no way to pay and have no insurance to pay. We cannot ignore that. How to fix that? Man, that's a complicated that's a complicated challenging issue that requires lots of smart people from a variety of um, of, of categories associated with the issue. No, they don't spend half their money on admin costs, Thomas. It's about twenty percent. That's average. If you look at a lot of other companies. Uh, in other industries, you'll find that to be in line. Your company you work for is like that. And uh, you make the assumption, and some other people do, that you just need zero operational people. All the things you have to do to operate a business, you just don't need those. You just need the direct providers of the in-service. I think about my own company, which was razor thin, honestly. I served as the... CEO of the company, $250 million company. I didn't have an assistant. Never had an assistant. Never had a secretary. Never had an admin. It was by choice. I just couldn't figure out what to do with them. That's pretty unusual. And I felt like we were razor thin. But to think that you don't have to have people to, say, do procurement or human resources, uh, things like payroll, um, filing tax returns, like sales tax returns, and, and dealing with all those things, treasury services, accounting. Something as simple as scheduling appointments. Right. I, I, you, you, I thought about that when you said it. I just did an eye appointment this morning, thinking about that. Even if they contract out to a business that only sets appointments, that's still an administrative cost. Yeah, you got to pay money for it, and that's a decision you have to make. But uh, I, I just think and it's usually a decision made to save money instead of having somebody on the payroll. You pay a service to do it for you, and and every situation is different. You'd have to d- figure out. You have to do the math on that. Gee, is it cheaper for me to? I mean, it's a it's a it's a make versus buy question what it is. The whole concept, by the way, of outsourcing, it, it kind of has its roots uh, in the global consulting firm McKinsey. Go look at the history of that. It goes back to the 70s. One of their first customers, Kodak. And in my industry, in the IT industry, it's, it, it's something that 
is considered on a regular basis by companies. Do I hire people to do that on site? Do I do I buy all the hardware, software, and and install it on my premises for consumption, or do I consume it from the cloud nowadays? For example, in the old days, it was do I allow third parties to manage and monitor and administrate uh, administer pardon me my environment, or do I hire people on staff? And there's trade-offs on that. You know, some people like the idea of, hey, I got a person down the hall that I can just go tap on and say, hey, come fix this problem, relative to having a third party where you might have a time lapse, a time lag in there. So that would be the same thing as well um, with respect to hospitals. You think about the incredible, incredibly complex IT environments they have. Who deals with all that? Hospitals were among my biggest customers. It's massive, the IT. Massive when you think about what's involved in running a hospital. Now everybody has these electronic health records systems. Those are gigantic and extremely expensive, very difficult to implement. And they're like a horse or a boat. It takes an army of people 24 hours a day to keep them running in tip-top shape. I guess, according to Thomas, you could just eliminate that. Those networks, those application software platforms, oh, they just run themselves. Nobody has to has to nursemaid them. Think about our environment here, Rhino. I mean, it's, it's constantly something, constantly. And we're teeny tiny compared to a hospital. And we have resources on staff, thank God, to deal with that. People text us when stuff goes down, right? And that they should. So what do we do? We have to turn it over to people, people that work here, that have to go take care of that problem. I guess you just would eliminate that in some people's worlds. It's not practical. Now, that's not to say that, yeah, you might have some, some assets you just simply don't need. You can't keep them busy. And maybe it's it is a duplication. Yeah, sure. You need to be scouring that. But I don't think we have a lot of people that advertise on this network that don't pay us for it. Are you aware of any? I don't think we give any of that away for free. Might be some public service announcements, but I think that's typically announced and uh, and, and tagged onto the the uh, the ad itself. A lot of people think we do these remotes. We just show up because we want to be there. That ain't true either. There's a fee for that. We're coming right back with more from the Element Well Studios. Good days with Gerard. Good for America. Good for fans of justice and truth. Good for us. Super Talk Mississippi. This is what we stand for. We are back 
In the Element Wealth Studios, go to myelementwealth.com or call 601-957-6006 to let Element Wealth help you find your balance between income growth and guarantees that dial all over the place today, presently down. Oh, just crossed the line. It's now in the green. That kangaroo is hopping around. Investors cannot figure out what to do. Um, lots of conflicting data, or probably more accurate to say confounding data. That's why it keeps moving around. It's confounding the smart investment community. What's the Fed going to do? I think there's too much focus on the Fed personally. It's It's gotten where all we care about is whether or not what the Fed's going to do from a monetary policy perspective as opposed to what companies uh, are best poised to really run their profits up. I saw a report, read a report this morning. I'm going to have to dig into the details of it before I really discuss it further. But at the highest level, the Fed, for in its first time ever, now the Fed is a, is a bank that is owned by the taxpayers, if you will. First time ever in its history, lost money, is losing money right now. And that's Similar to the Silicon Valley bank dilemma, it's all based on their holdings and interest rate changes, which, of course, they implement. But the taxpayers are are absorbing what looks like about $50 billion this year. $50 billion. Just for... Just $50 billion. $50 billion. So we see a lot of people, of course, think that if we just stop foreign aid, that would balance the budget. It's $40 billion. The Fed's losing $50 billion. Now, I'm not, that's not a, a statement in favor of foreign aid. Well, it would be nice if they could at least keep the books better. I, I agree. So the Pentagon now is having a little problem in their accounting for assets sent to Ukraine, right? Whoopsie, we sent an extra $6.2 billion. Billion. Billion, right. So, yeah, that's pathetic. That's inexcusable. Just $6.2 billion. And we should all be concerned about that, no doubt. But I just want to point out the Fed is losing money. Yeah, so Ben from Madison points out, sure, hospitals have a lot of admin workers. There's no doubt, Ben, but but and I'm not again making excuses for bloated admin organizations. But if you think about just the procedures in a hospital, I'm talking about the procedures of of the the, the interaction, the transaction. I don't mean medical procedure. I mean the interaction with a hospital, between a hospital and a patient. It's incredible the amount of people you got to deal with. And again, it's because somebody else is paying the bill, typically. And that complicates the operational process by orders of magnitude. You got to have people that can work with patients to understand their coverage, their health history, all that sort of stuff. Then you got to have people that have to oversee um, the billing, the claims processing. Then you got to have people whose full-time job is to fight with the insurance companies to get paid and collecting from patients. Full-time job. Massive full-time job. Unlike any other industry. That's why. That 
is the reason why there's so much. And then again, very complicated information technology systems that requires an army of people to keep all that stuff up and running. Now, you may not consider that admin, but it's operational, if you will. It's not health care. They're not providing health care, direct health care services. They're not health care professionals. These are giant. And i got to tell you, working with hospitals as I have in IT for 20-something years, every one of them were understaffed. Couldn't get to everything. Constantly behind. Always putting off upgrades and refreshes and enhancements. Can't take it on. And you know what happens? The quality of the information systems suffer. Don't believe me? Ask Southwest Airlines. I think I shared that story with you. My big customer, Delta, said, you guys need to go call on Southwest. We went and called on them. We ain't spending any money on that. Okay. I went back to Delta and told them. They said, mark my word, the whole thing's going to crash. It's exactly what happened because he wouldn't spend any money. Hospitals, they too suffer. Man, just, just managing cybersecurity protection and defenses in a hospital especially subject to HIPAA law? Nightmare. Full-time. Need an army of people. And constantly spending money and investing in new technology, upgrades, etc. Constant. Never ends. Especially with HIPAA. And Dr. Edney hit the nail on the head. He said, the government tells us what to do. It may be the most regulated industry. You'd have to say healthcare, um, and then financial, right? Your, your health and your money. Those are the two most regulated industries in our country, and those no doubt drive the need for lots of systems and administrative people just to comply. Because if you don't, all kinds of fines and other bad things happen to you. We're coming right back with Haley Fasakerly, President and CEO of Energy, after the news. Stay with us. And now, the talk that keeps Mississippi talking. That's what I like to listen to. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Here on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone, to the Element Well Studio. It is midday, Super Talk Mississippi, on this hump day. Hour two of the program. We welcome Haley Fisakerly, president and CEO of Entergy Mississippi. Good to see you, Haley. Good to see you, Gerard. Thank you so much for having us in. Well, we appreciate you coming in. I know it's been a tough uh, few days. Uh, you and I were just talking off the air. Really unusual weather pattern and circumstances for uh, the state of Mississippi. And lots of power knocked out as a result of that. Give us the latest. Yep, uh, Gerard, this is definitely a unique situation. You know, we've been in this business 100 years, and uh, we are, we saw a weather phenomenon we've never seen before where we had thunderstorm after thunderstorm, five, five thunderstorms that hit us over a course of seven days. Hmm. And it was frustrating, uh, but well, they were unusual, severe thunderstorms. We typically see a thunderstorm come in. We're going to have high winds and heavy rain. Get it through, put it back on. But we saw 80-plus mile-per-hour winds, tornadoes, uh, reports of softball-sized hail, 
uh, all types of events and, and lightning the, that create a tremendous amount of damage too. So the challenge when those come in like that in repetition like that, when we have a storm hit, we assess. We quickly get essential services back on, hospitals, police stations, fire stations, water treatment, communication systems, and then go after the circuits and lines that get the most people on. So, And we get to work right away. A lot of times it's closing a breaker or a fuse. But as we're doing those assessments, we're getting hit again. It's like you're attacking something, you're getting hit from the flanks, and that that's disruptive. We can't put trucks in the air with uh, winds over 30 miles per hour or in lightning. Now, they can work in rain, but that disrupts the interrupt the process. Hmm. And as it grew, we had to get more crews in. And this event was more than Mississippi. I don't know if you saw the reports, but Swepco Energy in northwest Louisiana had over 200,000 customers out as of yesterday. Wow. Uh, it went into Texas. Uh, AEP had a half a million customers out. So the utility is a brotherhood. We help each other out. And they couldn't release crews. And it was a path going east, and the utilities to our east, like, well, we need a hole tight, too. But we did a great job of massing 2,300 workers. We have another 100 showing up as I speak right now, and we made progress. And since June 10th, we have restored power to 230,000 customers. We serve 460,000 customers. So this hit 34 of the 45 counties that we serve in the state. So it had a spread out, too. So it's been a big challenge. Our guys are working hard. It's in tough conditions, this heat. Uh, but we're making progress. I know customers are frustrated. I would be, too. It's five days without power in this heat. Um, we had some challenges with communicating restoration times to customers because of the disruptions and the repetitive storms that make it hard to get to a static state to do that. So definitely been a, a one we're going to learn a lot of lessons from, but we are focused and we hope to wrap up most of it today. We'll have a few carryover to, to, to tomorrow. I'm sure you're aware that uh, Public Service Commissioner Brent Bailey um, issued a, a, a press release where he expressed frustration, as he calls it, with Entergy on their response. And he said the delay in restoring power has caused significant hardships for their customers. It's unacceptable. We expect EML to take swift action to address this issue and ensure that our communities are not left in the dark for prolonged periods of time in the aftermath of the of, of future uh, severe weather events. So. What do you say to that, Hale? Well, I understand he's getting a lot of calls. He's getting just like I am. Sure, too. people are I'm frustrated. Sure. Yeah, and he's a regulator. He has to look at us. So we're going to get through this, get everybody back on, and we will look forward to engaging with him and sharing what we learned. But also want them to see this was unique. We have never seen this at at a series of storms at 80 miles per hour. This is like getting hit by elf. Uh, you know, a Category 1 hurricane one yeah. after another. Yeah. And it's it's something we've never seen before. Have there been situations where you've restored power and then storm came through and knocked the same yes. areas out? I know, and I'm very uh, – you know, the, the worst – if you look at the gap – Kind of the Hines-Madison area right through there was the worst area. And we had situations where uh, customers saw multiple outages. And I know that's frustrating. It would be different reasons. Uh, one was being a broken pole and he had to get back up. Uh, we had situations where brand-new poles were put back in place. And, you know, yeah. large trees in some of these old, beautiful neighborhoods came right back down on the same pole. Yeah. You know, and uh, in that case, didn't break the pole, maybe knock the wires down or something. But... 
so that did tell you, you know, those had to come back and get back to those. They went, they went through the process. So it's a frustrating process, I know. So if the average person looked at the org chart uh, mm-hmm. of the company, of Entergy, and, and looked at the, the staffing model, um, I, I'm going to assume you have uh, some staff that maybe are responsible for new construction, and and you have sort of an org there when you're out right um, provisioning new electrical uh, connections right and and that may involve everything from putting up poles and pulling wire all the way into the the final mile to the address that you're going to service and then maybe you have staff and I'm I'm just this uh-huh. is kind of way I would think it would work right. and then I'm going to ask you to tell me what the truth is but staff that are responsible for repairing. That's right. In, in correcting issues when of existing systems when they fail. So my question is, i, I got to believe you staff for certain expectations. That is it fair to say maybe this exceeded your staffing model is what caught you off guard? Well, you can never staff. It's, it's impossible. Impossible for the worst bit. So that's why we have contract partners. Sure. I call them partners. Sure. The term we use are baseload contractors. Okay. They are committed to us. Okay. They, they are a member of the team. They may not wear the energy hat. They're yeah. B&B. I Irby, see them around town. Yeah. Great. Good Mississippi form companies. Yeah. Great people. And the we, But we have to provide reliable service, safe, but also have to be affordable. So talk about construction. It is intermittent. You don't yeah. ever sure. know. So Absolutely. we fill that in with construction because okay. when that job's done, you let yeah. them go. Right? Yeah. Sure. So we staff around what we call reliability. I have a vice president reliability. Okay. And those are your uh, your servicemen. Those are your troublemen. Those are your journeymen. Those are your first-class linemen okay. and stuff. And they focus on reliability. Okay. They can do construction and stuff of that nature. But that partnership, I think one of the biggest things that has improved and changed over time is the robustness of the contract market that sure. really didn't exist before, and it gives utilities like Entergy that flexibility to ramp up, ramp down. Sure. And in storm events, where customers win is, I didn't have to keep that 2,300 workforce on payroll. Yeah. We pay them when they come in and yeah. stuff of that nature. And so just like any business today, Absolutely. in our industry, our economy today, people find areas where they can become the expert in, and then you, they contract out. And it's a win-win for us all. Yeah, make, makes total sense. But it, it seems like, it feels like, given kind of the, the compressed uh, time period that such destruction occurred, that that outstripped your resources, including your partners. Is exactly. that fair to say? All around us, everybody got impacted. So one thing about Entergy, we're part of a multi-state holding company. So we have sister companies in Arkansas, Louisiana, New Orleans, Texas, and we can help each other. Well, they got frozen in place. Uh, when the, Now, the worst part was when it crossed the Mississippi River into Mississippi. Okay. But soon they got their zone. They loaned some resources to us. Okay. And they're baseload contractors, too, which are a different group. And that helps of that nature. But, you know, we're all dealing with workforce challenges today. Uh, and so that's why I'm so glad to have these contract partners sure. because they can help us when we're as we're trying to fill vacancies. We just graduated a large boot camp, for example, okay. recently out of our, our center up in Clinton. And so they're coming into the workforce, and we got another one going in. So we try to staff as quickly as we can, but uh, not as many people want to be linemen as they used to be. I, I understand. So, uh, we well, and that's true for the contractors as well. That's right. right. I mean, they're they're trying to – 
seek talent from the same pool. And we're working right with uh, community colleges on linemen programs and things of that nature, producing really great candidates. They do outstanding work, and the the tools they get to work with today are much different uh, than the past. And so a lot of technology changes and stuff. And one of the things that, you know, then a good consequence out of this, if I found one, is when we rebuild, though, technology is showing us new standards. More, we're going to large, uh, better class poles. Okay. Conduit is improving where it's stronger but lighter. Okay. So that helps with line uh, weight and things of that nature. Cross arms are made of uh, uh, materials that can bend and not break. And so the technology is constantly changing the tools and things sure. we work with. So the stuff we're going back in the field will be more, more robust or the term we say more resilient. Okay. Yeah. Before you go, has this been a learning experience? Do you Always see things is. that you're going to improve on? Yeah, and you'll you know. report that? to Brent? You know this better than everything. You don't get better unless you you can always learn. And so when this no is doubt. over, we'll go through a lessons learned process. No doubt. No doubt. Yeah. All right. Appreciate you coming in, Haley, and give us uh, giving us an update on that. And uh, sounds like wh- when do you expect we'll have full restoration? We'll have almost everybody back on tonight. We're going to have about a thousand or less in like rural areas and maybe hard to reach. There's some really damaged areas where we have to get track equipment. This is called the onesie twosies. We get one pole up, one customer own. And I got uh, you. Uh, I got you. you I got understand. Yeah. Yep. Appreciate it, Haley. Thanks for coming in. Thank you, Gerard. Appreciate Haley it. Sackerley, President and CEO of Energy Mississippi, has been our guest on Middays. We're coming right back. Three. The talk that keeps Mississippi talking. We're rolling. Hit it. Go. Play it. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. On Super Talk Mississippi. you did there <laughs> so man i i certainly appreciate the frustration of people without power and it taking a long time to restore it uh, i you know i certainly wouldn't try to downplay how uh what a hardship that causes. No doubt about it. But here's what I'll say. Um, you have to tip your hat to Haley for coming in and being willing to talk about it. He's not hiding whatsoever. And, uh, you know, he he understands. He appreciates everyone's frustration and concern. Now, as is typically the case when you have some sort of major event like this where systems fail and you have to repair and restore them. I started thinking, Rhino, how many parallels there are to my business. I mean, one's an electrical network, one's a data network. But it's still a gazillion components that comprise those systems, any one of which could cause a failure. 
and there's certain resiliency you build build in, and then that's like insurance. What we used to tell customers: well, it just depends on how much insurance you want when we're building out these systems. You you look at um, failover and resiliency. Sure, we can make it so that it's like impossible for you to ever be down. You got enough money to pay for that, though. That's no, I'm okay, and, and I'm not saying that's what happens in a consumer perspective. But I'm just saying that in a regulated industry like they are where they're trying to keep the cost reasonable, not only that, at a level where we can even consume electricity, honestly, in energy, power. You've got to balance that with the cost to provide it, support it, maintain it. That's like threading a needle. And again, I'm not making excuses here. I'm, I'm just trying to convey the, the, um, the challenges and uh, he, he told me, and he's right about this, uh, once we completed the interview off the air, I can't imagine what this would have been like 15 years ago, before we had all this sophisticated technology that we do today, where virtually everything is connected. And that's just improving, constantly improving. And the connectivity of it gives constant real-time visibility into status and also facilitates communication between workers. So just as he said, being a lineman now is a completely different job than it was 15 years ago. Almost everything is, right? Just because of how much technology has been injected, which is great. It's fantastic. It's made things better, more reliable, more resilient. And uh, it typically cuts down on the amount of time necessary to remediate problems. Uh, It's fantastic. Think about your vehicle. Hell yeah, cars are just mobile computers at the end of the day. I mean, it's just R. When you think about the the number of sensors and computers on board a vehicle, that didn't exist 20 years ago. Which I think is, it could be argued that there is a, uh, a middle ground that's missing where you still have the simplicity of older vehicles because sometimes... Modern vehicles are just overly complicated for the sake of being overly complicated. Uh, there's some truth to that, but they fail a lot less. True. I mean, it's not like the old days where i got to pull it up under the tree and get the blocks out to go working on the solenoid or something like that. They they fail a lot less. But part of that is over-regulation. I mean, you look at the Agreed. left. They love to talk bad about big pickup trucks and gas guzzlers, but it's the left and over-regulation that is not allowed the tiny truck market to grow in the u.s yeah the little bitty trucks that are essentially as net zero carbon because they don't produce any so the greenies should love them but oh they're they're not safe enough for americans oh well they're safe enough for the rest of the world yeah that that was um that's because you're right that got politicized and when you politicize something that should be should be managed from a practical, pragmatic perspective, not a political perspective. You screw up. And that's exactly what that was. No doubt about it. So on the ceasefire tax line, I'm sorry I didn't see this uh, during the interview, but speak on rumors that computer issue, uh, supposedly energy was in the middle of terminating one contract with the contractor and hadn't signed up with a new contract. I mean, there's all kinds of rumors going around. Uh, in that regard, uh, but I, I think what we certainly did here, and it should come as no surprise to most people, that 
the uh, power companies, the electrical companies, have have employed uh, third-party contractors for quite some time to provide uh, services, um, sometimes construction, but to a great extent, repair, remediation. I, I know I've experienced that in my, my neighborhood. So Energy is responsible for the street lights in my neighborhood, and I place a call to Energy to report light outages. Yeah, I'm the weird guy that does that. I want all the lights to work in the neighborhood. <laughs> and, um, and so I've done that. And, yeah, it's a contractor that comes out, typically, that will handle uh, that repair. And one of those, it turned out, had a, it was a problem with a, with a wiring in the ground, the underground wiring that serviced a particular pole. And they came out, one crew came out and checked it, and whatever's required to, to repair that situation, they weren't capable of doing. Typically, it's come out and replace a bulb. But this required a different group. So they tied a yellow ribbon on the um, – a danger ribbon, you know, on the on the pole. You'd have to dig under the ground and put your hand on the cable. Now, some idiot might do that. But nonetheless, that's the standard. You know, that's the policy. And they did that. And then they sent another group out that had to dig up underground and fix it. It's a some sort of voltage problem, something to that effect. I, I will say, you know, in, in, in personal experience, and one who's got a lot of experience in dealing with uh, services automation tools and systems, like the one I told you about yesterday uh, that we used in our environment, it does seem that energy systems should be upgraded. Uh, it's probably something they know. Um, I, I did ex- experience a, a little frustration in that it seemed to be difficult for agents to see the whole picture of the issues that I was calling about that should be in their system and were and recorded, but it was just difficult for them to plow through it and and um, and provide status. And so I, I do think there's an opportunity there for some improvement. Now, let's be honest. Is there a company out there that doesn't have a need to improve their internal data systems? No. And if there are, well, then that means the industry's the, <laughs> the IT industry is about to just end. That's not going to happen. So we all could um, – it's a constant chase, right, to enhance, to upgrade. Sometimes it's what's called a forklift upgrade where you had just – no, that's all got to go and we got to replace it. Typically that means because – you have not refreshed in a while. You've not modernized in a while. You've gotten to a point where you got to forklift everything. Is what we used to call it. Uh, sometimes it's uh, it's just you've outgrown your 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 functional needs now exceed the features and capabilities of the tools themselves, and you've got to upgrade, got to replace. Uh, it just it seems to me, just in my personal experience, that there there's um, some room for improvement there. I'll just say how much that played into this situation, I don't know, and um, I, I'm just not sure, honestly. I think uh, at the end of the day, I think what we'll see is that there are no, a number of factors that played into the length of time it has taken to restore service. I think one that Haley talked about was the con- continuous rounds. That's unusual. I mean, even in the case of a hurricane, you typically have a hurricane comes through, and after that, the, the weather's okay. It, it accommodates going to work. But when you have 
bad thunderstorms plow through an area, and then the very next day the same area gets hit, and the next day the same area gets hit. I, I can certainly see. And what do you say? They can work in the rain, but they can't in, in high winds. And yeah, I mean you you can't be up in a bucket truck in high winds or lightning because it's really unsafe. Yeah, rain you can you're miserable, but you can still work. Right. High winds. Blow the whole thing over because it's top heavy and lightning. And lightning, yeah, you can get struck, especially considering where you're working. Yeah, you're sitting duck in that situation. So, but um, and that's why I asked uh, Haley if they learned a lot here and they'll make some adjustments. I expect they will. They'll do uh, what's called a post mortem, a root cause analysis, an RCA, and they'll come out and they'll uh, hopefully improve their their systems and be better prepared to respond to a situation like this. The great Ray Charles bumping us out of this segment here on Middays. Don't forget Dr. Mark Horn coming up at 12.05. We're in the Element Well Studios and coming right back. Yeah, do the mess around. Everybody's doing the mess around. Everybody ready? I'm ready. Ready here. Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. Everyone, midday Super Talk Mississippi. They can't work in the middle of a shot out either, says Nina in Grenada. I think that's referring to it's supposed to be shootout. Shootout. Okay, yeah, that was the um, the situation in Jackson, right? Yeah, there were reports of shots fired near one of the crews working. Man, so they had to load up and roll out. Man, man, man. So, Thomas, you, you seem to know the internal workings of every hospital and of Entergy. That's impressive. <laughs> Did that, are you on the board uh, in management? He says they're focused on laying fiber and offering broadband. That's why they haven't kept their maintenance department staffed. Instead, they are relying on contractors to do actual power utility work. They've been relying on contractors to a great extent, to provide an, uh, a lot of these services to augment their current staff for as long as I can remember. I can't remember when the last time they, they didn't, or last when they didn't. So I don't, I don't think that's right. I think that's incorrect. Totally. Somebody said, uh, somebody said something about a board. Unfair attack on Haley, says Bubba and Starkville. I work with Entergy, first-class organization, led by a first-class man. I've known him for 45 years, unprecedented series of events over the last few days. So, Bubba, are you referring to Brent Bailey, or are you referring to me? I certainly didn't feel like I attacked him whatsoever. I just asked questions that I hope the are the ones that people want to know the answers to. But um, I I agree. I, or was he talking about the rumors that have been spreading? Oh, okay. 
I, I got you. It could be either. I mean, there's no secret, and he, he would tell you. He's, his phone's been lighting up. He's um, He's been the target of lots of concern. And sure, when when your power's down, you really don't care. In fact, on social media, I caught a post from Congressman Michael Guest last week, Rhino. This was at the Mississippi Main Street Awards event. And he just happened to give a shout-out in the post to, I think, Meridian, city of Meridian, which is in his district, won one of the uh, one of the awards, and, and somebody on the post um, commented that the congressman should be all over the power company to get power restored. You know what? I, I don't know. I, I don't. I don't see it that way. I don't. I don't think that's again something that. A, a member of Congress, even a representative of the area, I mean, to, to find out status, maybe uh, share concerns, uh, maybe have a conversation with the CEO that he's, he's heard some, some grumbling from his constituents, that may be appropriate, but I think I would work through the Public Service Commission. That's who they're regulated by, not the U.S. Congress. Thank God. I don't want them to. Hell, the federal government's involved too much, in my view. So I just thought that was inappropriate. But I get it. People are, are they're frustrated. And, uh, again, I think back on my personal career, and, you know, people don't care. They just want stuff to work. And they should, honestly. That doesn't make them bad people. That doesn't mean their expectations are unreasonable. But one thing you learn about being in a, in a service business like that, where the service is continuous, I mean 24 hours a day, seven days a week, one thing you learn is that they don't ever compliment you <laughs> when it's working, which is about 99.9% of the time. You only hear from them when it's not. And that's just human nature. Right? It doesn't make them bad people. We're just that we're that way. We're, we are accustomed to. And this is a good thing because of how far our society has progressed. We're accustomed to instant, constant everything. And anything less than that is unacceptable. With respect to the response here uh, from the company to restore power, you know, I've heard people say, yeah, so Bubba says, uh, Brett and others, not you. Thank you for having him on. Your comments were very fair. Thank, thanks for that, Bob. And I, again, I, it's not my style to ever have anybody on the show that that we just attack. That's just a lot, a lot of people. I've had people think that even when we don't do that, you've heard it. You did, and I've had people say you didn't attack enough. I mean, so you're trying to thread a needle. <laughs> Is that right, Rhino? Oh yeah. <laughs> Uh, and that's fine. You know, we And I've had people tell me I should be fired for having an opinion. <laughs> On an opinion show. <laughs> um but I I do think that there, there's there's some other talk that some of the contractor some of the contractors that um, were mobilized to restore service were ready to go. I've heard this rumor and just waiting for further instructions uh from uh, the company uh, to deploy them and assign them 
I've heard that. I I don't know what the underlying issues are there. I don't know if it's true. I've just heard it. And if that's the case, that it could be a function of just being overwhelmed and and you know not having the staff and the systems to deal with that much at one time. Who in the world could ever prepare uh, for something so unusual? I, I, I know I used to think in my business I I need I need my staff to be like an accordion. I can just you know pull it out when I need more one day and push it in when I don't. Well, it doesn't work that way. But that would be the perfect world, right? But it, it's not perfect. And again, I'm not making excuses. And none I, of us want to live in an economy where that is a necessity. That's exactly right. Because usually when businesses are doing that on a daily basis, all right, there's a gaggle of people outside the gate. I want you, 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 and you. The rest of you go somewhere else. That's not an economy where everybody succeeds. Yeah. That's an economy experiencing extreme depression. Uh, agree. So, uh, you know, I have a friend um, that just said that the issue wasn't so much, her particular issue wasn't so much with the length of time. It's just the lack of communication, the vacuum. And that, no doubt, that's that's always a concern, always a problem. And, uh, you know, being in the, in the service remedi- remediation business, there's no doubt that when you aren't in communication and constant communication and regular frequent communication that the vacuum forms and then frustrations begin to boil over. There's no doubt about that. And so points out that in the past there would be text messages that you would get notifications on. Agree. And that and that it appears maybe that wasn't the case here. Those weren't as reliable. Um, and then I know that you had the outage maps as well, and there were some changes there, apparently. Uh, are you are you familiar with that? You heard that where they went from maybe being really granular at yeah, the at, at the, the street, street level, level to and being more counted. blocked. Yeah, blocked. Right. So, um, and I I can't explain that, and and maybe that's on me for not asking Haley Haley those questions that um, to explain that. Maybe we can find out, but but this also shows though, Rhino. And again, I'm not saying that my friend here is wrong I, whatsoever. Or that people are unreasonable because they they won't expect that. But this is another incumbency situation, and, and it's like Haley said. Um, well, what the heck did we do before we had cell phones and internet and and these uh, text alert systems? I mean, that's relatively new technology. New as in relative to how long electricity's been out there from uh, from utility companies. This has really been something in the last five to ten years because heck every school has those systems right we sold them uh to um to, to uh, school systems and companies that have this integrated uh, alerting technology built into them. heck we even had technology that that um, monitored the weather in school systems and it would send alerts out to parents based on their zip codes that's five six years ago when weather was in the area or, or imminent, forecasted for the area, bad weather, and it would be, hey, just letting you know your kids are in the school here and we got bad weather, something to that effect. The only point I'm making is we've created this constantly connected instant information world, which is fantastic. Now we're accustomed to it. 
and we expect it. And that's not bad. That's a good thing. What the problem is, like anything else, when people get accustomed to something and you're providing those services, and then all of a sudden they're not, yeah, you're, you're going to get some backlash on that. And that's it's not a bad thing whatsoever, but it, I think it is just a, um, a testament to how dang far we've come and advanced as a society. All good things, and the best is yet to come, in my view, in that respect. We're stepping aside for a break right here in the Element Well Studios. Dr. Mark Horn, after the top of the hour, to talk about the cancer drug shortage. Stay with us. It's so awesome! Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Come on, let's get on with the show! On Super Talk Mississippi. So Tony in Columbia and see who else? Oh, somebody on ceasefire text line just says they don't talking about energy, don't maintain their their right of ways very well in their existing infrastructure, and this is why it takes longer than normal to restore power. I really can't comment on that. It's over my head. Um, they they. Need competition, not subcontractors. Well, they're a regulated uh, monopoly, if you will. So you want multiple companies installing electrical wires all over the place? It's it's the physical aspect is why they're granted monopoly status, but they're highly regulated. I mean, that's just the way that's worked for a long time. I'm open to ideas of how you could introduce competition into the realm, but I don't want to see 42 light poles out on my corner, and I'd choose one of them. And this is uh, something that took hold in the telecom industry a long time ago. It's peering agreements is what they call them, because it's the same deal. You don't want multiple physical cables traversing the landscape, all competing to deliver the same service essentially. So, gosh, I'm sure we could we could all sit here and, and be armchair quarterbacks on how to run energy all day long, and nobody says anything about it until there's an outage. I mean, we, we don't think about... It's like everybody became submarine experts <laughs> exactly. in the last five days. <laughs> well, I, and I guess what I was going to say is this only becomes an issue when the power's out. Because we're just not used to the power being out. We shouldn't be used to the power getting out. I'm not saying that we should become accustomed to that whatsoever. But we humans have gotten pretty dang good at some of this stuff. And when there's a failure, it's just it's in your face. It blows up. And, of course, in the case of electricity, it's, it's pretty critical to your life, at least today. And the same is true for Internet and your IT services. 
My gosh, when you don't have internet, it's like the world's ended. And I think it's great. I think it just demonstrates how valuable those tools are, how meaningful they are, how impactful, how necessary they are. And again, that's not making excuses. And certainly, I agree with my friend, if the normal routine for some time has been we give you constant updates, and then then all of a sudden when you need them the most, when you have a prolonged outage, those aren't being provided. Yeah, that's a problem. And that needs to be addressed. I feel like that Mr. Fasakerly is a man of of, uh, high integrity and a very competent leader, and I feel like that that sort of stuff will be addressed. And that the um, any adjustments that need to be made, improvements in their in their systems and their processes, will be made as a result of this. Uh, any any good company like that, I mean, I can tell you this: they couldn't succeed whatsoever in the business they're in if they aren't um, adhering to and those sorts of practices. Where when we have a problem, we do a deep dive root cause analysis. And we make changes to prevent the problem from happening in the future and or improve our response when it occurs. So I feel pretty good about that. Sam from Mount Hermon says, another problem with the restoration of powers when outside power companies from other states come to another state to help. They need to learn the way the state they are in, how to re- repair the power lines. Yeah, he said that, Sam, if you if you heard him. I don't. Um, I think he was on the air, wasn't it, Rhino? It wasn't after the interview that, yeah, that when we bring in folks from um, other regions, other areas that aren't familiar with our systems, our networks, there's some... There's some orientation that has to occur. He said, actually said they have to be escorted, right, by an Entergy employee into the area where they're going to do work because of that, because they've got to acclimate it to them. And my guess is technology will, again, improve so that um, that process is much more streamlined and maybe doesn't require an Entergy employee, a badged Entergy employee accompanying them to the site. Oh, uh, let's see. Oh, uh, yeah, this is from Chris from Oxford. I'll try to get to that later. Chris, appreciate that. Let's see. I agree with my f- with my friend. You better hope the Republican goes in office because Biden ain't letting new plants be built for power. That's something else we probably ought to think about. Yeah, they don't want this old dirty electricity we're all accustomed to unless it's it's sourced from renewables, right? Yeah, that is a good point. But yeah. don't put those windmills there because they're reindeer. Mm, unbelievable. And they're killing the whales in the Northeast. They can't figure that out. Well, they say they can't. We're stepping aside for Fox News and Super Talk News back with Dr. Mark Horn. Welcome to the show that challenges you to think deeply deeply. and look beyond political posturing. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi.
Welcome back, everyone. Midday, Super Talk Mississippi, hour three of the program from the Element Well studio on this hump day. Joining us now, Dr. Mark Horn, the chief medical officer at South Central Regional Medical Center and past president of the Mississippi State Medical Association. Dr. Horn, thanks for joining us, sir. Thank you. Can you hear me? Yes, sir. We got you. So we wanted to uh, have you on to talk about reports of uh, drug shortages, in particular some some drugs used in the treatment of cancer, chemotherapy drugs, etc. Tell us what's going on there. Well, drug shortages is something we've been dealing with uh, for quite some time uh, in hospitals for several years, and it's a rotating, moving target. It's like whack-a-mole. We make th- get things better here, it gets worse there. The current uh, issues that are most significant and concerning are some chemotherapy drugs, particularly the platinum-based drugs like cisplatinum and carboplatin. There's some others. Uh, those are drugs that are really critical to uh, the care of uh, a large number of patients with advanced cancers, uh, and they're very effective. They're not for everybody, but it's uh, it, there are workarounds for some patients, but there's some situations where it's really the game in town. What's the root cause of this problem? Uh, I wish it was easy. Like so many things that we deal with, it's complex. I heard you earlier, you were talking about uh, the highly regulated uh, utility industries. Well, medicine is a shockingly regulated industry. Sure. And uh, that goes for the supply chains as well. So we run into things with uh, a lot of the manufacturing has all gone offshore. Uh, we have federal policies which encourage, have encouraged that in the past. Uh, so we moved it away from being manufactured onshore to first to places like Puerto Rico. And then, of course, there was a hurricane of Maria two or three years ago there, damaged a lot of those plants. And now it's gone to India and China. And so we're losing control in that route. We, sometimes these, uh, other countries don't necessarily have our best interest at heart. That's one. Two. There are fewer manufacturers. So if something goes wrong at a plant, there are some drugs that are only manufactured at one or two plants in the world. And I don't know about the platinum-based products, but so you have very few manufacturers. If something goes wrong, the FDA shuts them down because of safety concerns or they have to, there's a fire or some sort of accident or a hurricane, then there's a dramatic impact on the supply chain. So there's not enough redundancy in the system. I think there's no doubt that, uh, Dr. Horn, that that during COVID, when we saw some uh, issues with uh, obtaining antibiotics, for example, that it brought it into focus that so so many of the drugs that that we consume here in this country that are administered, prescribed, aren't made in this country. And in, in cases, in some cases, they're made in countries that maybe don't have, as you said, our best interest at heart. It brought that uh, to a head, and there's been a lot of discussion in Washington um, along those lines. Do you, do you see any movement from the pharmaceutical industry to start to uh, replant some of those facilities and manufacturing capabilities here? Uh, I can think of two or three individual things. I know that uh, the Ozempic line is entirely on U.S. shores now. That's a drug that most people have heard of. Yeah. Um, that's not something as critical. I mean, we're facing shortage of things like solumedrol, solucortic. These are basic steroids uh, that are essential for a lot of treatments, and there are shortages. Uh, we have to worry about various anesthesia agents at times. And so I hope that our leaders will 
do everything they can to onshore as much of this production as we can. The same way that I've heard people talk about, we would not want to be dependent on food supply offshore. So we need that food and medicine and shelter. Those are some kind of key things that we all need on a daily basis. Yeah. No doubt about it. So how how is uh, our healthcare providers, oncologists, et cetera, especially with these chemotherapy drugs, how, how are they getting around this? Are there alternatives that they're, they're able to uh, obtain? There's typically, um, like any good cook, they if you're missing one ingredient, you sometimes know how to substitute another. Yeah. So these chemotherapy regimens, uh, you could think of them as recipes, uh, you can fudge and change a bit. It may be as good. It may not be as good. Uh, and then what we're doing is uh, there are various societies that have looked at this, and they're saying, okay, you might like to use a platinum-based um, regimen here, but we know this other regimen is mostly as good, so why don't you use that for these cases and save the platinum-based regimens okay. or they are truly superior. Okay. So maybe in more serious cases, more acute cases – where uh, you maybe prioritization. Okay, I got you. I mean, which is something you guys do in your line of work on a daily basis uh, when you're dealing with a resource allocation. Well, gosh, it just seems like that maybe we'll get a clue and start addressing this. We we certainly got a dose of it, no pun intended, during COVID, and then we had the baby formula shortage on the heels of that. Maybe we're starting to wake up in this country and realize that we can't be so reliant on uh, other nations' production facilities to serve our needs. Uh, sure would like to see some movement occur there. Uh, is is the medical community speaking up, Dr. Horn? Are you guys letting um, folks in charge know? We speak continuously on a wide range of topics, including this one, and I, all I can say is hope springs eternal. Yeah. Yeah, I hear you. Do you know of any situations where someone was scheduled for a chemotherapy treatment and it was then uh, rescheduled, uh, canceled, rescheduled as a result of lack of availability of these drugs? I checked with our oncology department uh, prior to this, and and we have not experienced it locally. We've always been able to get just enough, just in time. Okay. But we haven't had... uh, certainty or confidence uh, we have to you know wait and see so we haven't had to do it but i hear uh reports of that happening in other places and it certainly would not surprise me given what we've experienced in challenges of getting adequate supplies yeah totally understand we had um dr dan edney of course the state health officer on the program earlier today we were just discussing the economic status of the health care industry in the state of mississippi you and i have had those conversations mm-hmm. as well before What's the latest from your vantage point? Well, Dan and I talk about this with some frequency, and uh, you know, it's the same old story, and we keep giving the same diagnosis, and the patient keeps looking for a different explanation that will keep them from the obvious. Uh, and so we, we know what the root causes are. Uh, we don't have enough insured patients in the state of Mississippi. We have a very sick population. We don't do a good job of the social uh, addressing social determinants of health. And, you know, Dr. Ed Hill, our former AMA president from the Tupelo area and now in Oxford, uh, has talked about that for years and for decades. Uh, Dan and uh, uh, um, 
Dr. Uh, our former state health officer, Dr. Dobbs, Dobbs have yep. all talked about this. It's, it's the same story and we get, um, handshakes and we look, we love what you do and we want to help you. And then it's like this latest, um, $120 million, I think it was, the legislature gave, but they, they said it's going to be a grant program this way. And then the way it came out, it had so many strings attached that a lot of the smaller hospitals that really needed aren't going to be able to use it. Yeah, we talked so about it, that. It's yeah. very, very, very frustrating. Well, and of course, uh, while uh, uh, the 100 plus million might be of some degree of temporary assistance, it doesn't really solve the underlying structural problem. Root causes need to be addressed. The root causes are we need expansion of access to medical care. One of those things is to expand access to Medicaid to our working poor, not people getting a handout. It's literally people who work on a day-to-day basis uh, at lower-paying jobs who don't have insurance and need a hand up. Right. They will keep them healthy and in the workforce. That's one thing. Uh, the other thing is reform uh, that allows uh, physicians, healthcare providers, hospitals to negotiate in a more even uh, playing field, level playing field with our insurers who are constantly crushing uh, people who are providing the care with uh, prior authorization demands. They raise the cost of medicine to avoid paying, and um, we're still stuck taking care of patients. Yeah. Which we love to do. Sure. We do it. We love to do it. Sure. Yeah, that's not going to change. And and the situation is not a lot different across the rest of the country, uh, Dr. Horn. I'm sure you've seen that as well. We've got about a minute left. You've seen some of these prominent institutions that are in the red ink now. Uh, yeah, there are places that are. we're actually doing okay. We have some red ink on our uh, ledger right now, we're getting better, and we're not nearly as bad as some, and we haven't had any layoffs here in Laurel, thank God. But, yeah, it's a it's a constant challenge. It's getting worse. The workforce is another thing. We have to attract. If you're uh, out there looking for a career, look at a career in healthcare. LPN, RN, uh, medical assistant, uh, physician, there's jobs everywhere. We could hire 30 nurses today. I hear it from everybody in the industry. Dr. Horn, always a pleasure to talk to you, sir. Thanks so much for your time and your insight and for coming on today. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Dr. Mark Horn, Chief Medical Officer, South Central Regional Medical Center, has been our guest. We're coming right back. Check it out. Let's do this. The talk that keeps Mississippi talking. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Let's get on with it. On Super Talk Mississippi. back, everyone, to Middays. The old rubber band man. What's the latest on the uh, submarine that went a rogue on us there? Uh, the Coast Guard is expected to give an update uh, later in the day, but there was a report that I believe it was a Canadian plane that was flying sonar detected knocking. 
Yeah, that is apparently occurring every 30 minutes. Wow. But they are in a race against time because if the calculations are correct, they have less than 24 hours of available oxygen. Man. It's just totally bizarre, isn't it? I mean, it really is. And it's um, it's it's scary that something like that could happen. But I, I just wonder if it the whole deal just makes sense, what they do. I mean, it sounds like it'd be cool, fun, get a submarine, head down and check out the uh, the Titanic. Seems like there are a lot of risks, though, that we're now seeing. I don't know what the... Well, I mean, just look at the, the logistics of it. I, I realize technology continues to grow and get better, faster, and stronger, but the Titanic sank in, what, 1912? Yeah. And it wasn't rediscovered on the ocean floor until, what, 1986? Yep. Even though they knew roughly where it was, the technology was not available until the late 70s early 80s to even get down that deep i mean i understand there was the the voyage to challenger deep in what 1960 that went 40,000 feet deep but that wasn't to explore that was mainly just to go and right. then come back the the capabilities available in the 80s we we have much more in the way of capabilities now but you're still dealing with people in an emergency situation at a depth of 13,000 feet. There aren't a whole lot of vessels that can get down there to help in any way. And you're limited to how quickly you can ascend. So if they do find the vessel, they still have to calculate in the time to get it back to the surface and then get technicians onto the vessel to open the hatch because the hatch can only be opened from the outside. Right. Interesting. Uh, it's just crazy. And so I guess you do you think that they'll abandon the search once we pass that point where there's no more oxygen available? No. Say I mean, anything about that? It will go from what it is currently now to a recovery effort. Yeah. And instead of trying to rescue those on board. Interesting. Um. So, Sam from Mount Hermon says, Gerard, I will, when I see windmills and solar panels installed on the White House, then I will consider doing the same. Well, Sam, the White House does have solar panels. <laughs> they have had solar, solar panels since, what, Jimmy Carter? 2013 is when they did a major upgrade. I want to say they were installed, like they it, were one they of the were. first buildings to have solar panels. And yeah. I, it I may don't know go why I want to say it was Jimmy Carter. I can't imagine what they looked like back then and how. Yeah, you're right. 79. 79. So, but uh, they do consume, uh, receive much of their power from solar. Windmills, I mean, that actually produces electricity that is injected into the, the power system, the grid, to the utility companies. So. That's a little different. I, I mean, I guess you could have a windmill that produced power for a single address, a single structure. I guess you could. Can't imagine why you wouldn't. You just have to have something that transfers the the, the way in which it produces power to usable in your electric system in your house. But that's interesting. Let's see. There was something else that somebody asked me about. 
that I wanted to get to. Yeah, can you guys... Uh, no, 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 not that one. I'll get to that one in a minute. Somebody asked about Medicaid expansion. Do you see that, Rhino? Yeah, Alan in the Delta. Would you mind one day taking some time and explaining Medicaid expansion, kind of like what it is, what what does it do, et cetera? Yeah, pretty pretty quick, pretty simple. So Medicaid, of course, is... Um, is a government health care program that is, is essentially free. It is insurance, uh, somewhat limited, but it is insurance. And there are a number of different what are called coverage groups that qualify for Medicaid. Since the, um, since the program was created, the establishment of the program in 1965 under Linda B. Johnson, and there are a number of coverage groups, pregnant uh, women, for an example. I guess you can still say pregnant women, huh? I'm not saying pregnant people. I don't <laughs> care what they say. So pregnant women during the their pregnancy and now in some states, such as Mississippi, this was just enacted. They still have coverage postpartum. But that's one coverage group. Um, the, the blind and disabled, specifically, those are coverage groups. The uh, Another big coverage group would be low-income elderly a lot of folks on Medicare and Social Security, but their income is so low from those programs that they qualify for additional uh, coverage through Medicaid. And uh, a lot of times that would be uh, folks in nursing homes. So those would be big, um, a big swath of those that are insured by Medicaid. And... Um, and so that, by the way, they consume most of the money. It's the it's the indigent elderly, it's the impoverished elderly, and that's not not a surprise there. That's when most of us, virtually all of us, will consume most medical care is uh, during our our elder years. And then the other big coverage group, which is the biggest group, but doesn't consume the most. Uh, cost most of the funds through Medicaid are children, children that uh, are in homes in situations where they qualify from an income perspective. And the, the states have a little latitude in that in in um, specifying that income that would make a child eligible. I think in Mississippi, if I'm not mistaken, Rhino, it's 250% of the federal poverty level. If your household's federal, if your household's, pardon me, income is 250% of the federal poverty level and less, then the children in that household qualify for Medicaid. All right, so it's children, blind, disabled, pregnant women, indigent, elderly. Those are the standard coverage groups that have been around until the Affordable Care Act was passed in 2014. Uh, pardon me, went into effect 2014, passed in uh, 2010, and it added a coverage group. That would be the able-bodied adults whose income is less than 133% of the federal poverty level. But they have to have some income. can't be zero. That's why it's always referred to as coverage for the working poor. Got to work, have the income. And 133% of the federal poverty level, I don't have the, the chart in front of me, but just doing the math in my head, uh, that's going to come out to be about $19,000 a year for an individual. You looking at it? Is that what it says? 19391 Okay. 
I was pretty close. 26, 228 for two. two. Okay. 33, 64 for three. So, so keep this in mind. A lot of children covered by Medicaid live in households where the parents don't qualify. They work. But their income is less than 250% of the federal poverty level, so the children qualify. Um, they may have private insurance for themselves in Medicaid for their children, literally, or no insurance for themselves is the typical scenario. All right, so Medicaid expansion, what does that mean? That's the coverage group, like we said, of able-bodied adults that an individual has to make less than $19,000 a year. Sadly, in Mississippi, a lot of people. The way to solve this problem, it's what Dr. Edney said. It's to lift up incomes and and have our population work jobs that um, that pay more. Work for companies that offer insurance they can afford. Now, I don't know if you guys have shopped for private coverage in a while. If you get it through your employer, buy it through the individual market, don't have it at all. But dang. If you think about a person making $19,000 a year, just just say it's one person. Well, private coverage, even like through a group plan with your employer, with your employer kicking in some to cover it, it's going to run you, what, eight nine hundred bucks a month, last I checked. So you're, you're talking about almost two-thirds of your income when you're at 133% of the federal poverty level, go into your insurance. Nobody can afford that. That's what Medicaid expansion is. So a lot of people think wrongly that Medicaid expansion means expanding the amount of coverage or the dollars that go to it for the existing coverage groups. It doesn't. It means expanding by adding this this new coverage group of able-bodied adults which don't qualify for Medicaid in Mississippi. We're coming right back. Half an hour left in the Element Well Studios. The mammoth's got a brand new bag. Okay, is everybody ready? I'm ready. Ready here. Middays with Gerard Gibbons on Super Talk Mississippi. that song when I was, I think, in high school when it came out. What year? They're talking about radiators, so I know it was the 70s. <laughs> well, I mean, modern cars still have radiators. I guess. They're came different. out in 1980. Oh, wow. Did it really? Okay. Sausalito, beautiful Silicon Valley area of California, by the way. If you hadn't been there, it really is. And you talk about some expensive housing. Uh, look that up. What's the average price of a house in Sausalito? It's right up there with Palo Alto. It's got to be over a million bucks. Sausalito, California. Median price of $1.9 million. <laughs> $1.9 <laughs> That's a bungalow, too. <laughs> Fixer-upper bungalow, $1.9 Incredible. It is the most gorgeous views, arguably, 
of any home site in America, that's for sure. The calculated cost of living in Sausalito, California, yeah, according to 24-7 Wall Street, is $73,138 a year. Can't be that low. C- compared to the national figure of 38433 Well, okay. That includes housing, food, child care, transportation, health care, taxes, and other necessities for a single adult. I'm putting up the BS flag on that one. I don't think... You can't get housing in Sausalito. Seventy three thousand would be like the minimum cost of housing, six grand a month, for a one bedroom efficiency or something like that. That's interesting, though. Wow. Paula Meridian says, "What about Medicaid for the poor working class that had a copay involved to help offset some of the cost?" <laughs> I hear you, Paul. Of course, the and so just a, a little clarification here, a little explanation, I guess. You know, before Obamacare, for the Affordable Care Act, there were no limits that insurers could place on out-of-pocket costs and um, in the form of deductibles and copays. You had an, an annual limit. And once you – before that, you you didn't have a limit. You just could – they could have it such that no, no, this is your deductible that maybe has a limit, but your copay doesn't. And no matter how much care you consume and pay for, you still may have a copay. Whereas after Obamacare went into effect, that is limited on an annual basis. The maximum amount of out-of-pocket cost is I think maybe now Rhino might want to look it up like eleven thousand bucks a year, ninety five hundred bucks a year. So it's somewhere in that range. It started out I want to say back in twenty ten at like fifty five hundred, but the maximum out of pocket now is um, like ninety five hundred, ten thousand, per something like that. Now that's still a lot. They still got to come out of your pocket if you consume enough care. Yeah, nine thousand one hundred for an individual. Okay, so and then double that for with a spouse, right? Correct. I think it just doubles it. So, but think about that: you're married, you possibly could have eighteen thousand two hundred dollars out of pocket in the form of copays and deductibles with your insurance. That's a lot. Before that, insurers could could uh, charge a copay essentially on an unlimited basis. That's your copay. No, no maximum. Um, that's a lot. A lot of people can't afford that. When you think about that, people don't have ninety one hundred dollars. If you had some sort of serious illness and you went through your deductible and you incurred the copays, it's a bunch. So I hear you, Paul. the The theory behind Obamacare, honestly, the idea was first to get everybody insured. Secondly, that your your insurance should not exceed roughly 9% of your income. You should carve out 9% of your income for your health insurance. That's the idea. And that's still in effect today. Now, the Inflation Reduction Act actually made a little change in that and I think reduced it maybe by a percent or something like that down to eight, a minimal amount. But that was the idea 
behind it. And so it, no matter where you stand on Medicaid expansion, it, it does make sense to uh, try to, I think, understand and, and acknowledge what's the truth about Medicaid expansion. And I, I, because I've heard so many people have been a little, a little surprised in hearing that, that believe that that means we're going to expand the amount that we pay for Medicaid, the amount of benefits, and that's not the case. Expansion means we're simply adding a new coverage group, a coverage group that many people think exists today that doesn't, which is the able-bodied working adult coverage group. It's thought that in Mississippi some 200,000 or more, depending on whose report you look at, would qualify for that. And uh, that's kind of shocking, honestly, and, and disturbing to think that we have 200-plus thousand able-bodied adults working whose income is less than 133% of the federal poverty level. That's That's what we ought to be focused on. How do we fix that? And we just shared that's $19,100 a year of income for an individual. What would you say for a couple? 26000 in a household. Pretty hard to make ends meet on $19,000 a year these days for, for an individual. It's almost impossible to think about buying insurance, even when you get it through your employer at 800 bucks a month, 700 bucks a month, something like that. When you're making nineteen thousand a year, and eight thousand of that goes to health insurance, I don't see how you eat. Honestly, when you consider the cost of food, but there's always a bill to be paid with Obamacare. The grand idea of everybody should have coverage, even though some can't afford it, put the onus on young, healthy adults to pay for everybody else, essentially. That's absolutely true. That was the idea behind the individual mandate. You're going to buy insurance. We're going to force you to buy insurance because you're not going to want to pay this big penalty. And that means even able-bodied, healthy, young adults that don't consume a lot of health care, but they pay in. Honestly, it's not different than the way Social Security and Medicare works. People paying in today are paying the benefits for the people that are receiving them on the other side. But that was the idea. The the other thing that happened, this is... But they don't want to even acknowledge that happened as they talk about student loan debt. I agree All these with young you. people have all this huge debt. Well, maybe if they didn't have to buy insurance through Obamacare. Agree. Agree. So, look, the idea is is noble, and it's, it's logical. Uh, insurance works because... People pay in, and a few people receive benefits out. I mean, you, you're paying for to avoid that risk, essentially. It's risk mitigation. And it's the situation, it's a, it's, a, it's a way to avoid possible financial surprises. You don't know if you're going to be in a car wreck, but when you are, if you got insurance and you're liable, you're pretty glad you do. You could get taken to the cleaners go bankrupt. Same concept. But, on the other hand, a lot of people never file a claim and pay into it all the time. Just It's called insurance, risk mitigation. In the case of health insurance, again, so it's a noble idea, and it's sort of the miracle of insurance is what they call it. In, in the healthcare situation, the issue is we, we are consuming more health care when we get older. When we're younger, we don't. 
That's just the way the human body works. But if everybody's paying in, including the the young, healthy adults, you're right. They're covering the cost of the older population. There was also something, there's something called community rating, which essentially says it's a ratio. How much can an insurer charge an older person that's likely to get sick? Used to be they would charge women more for insurance because they consume more. They've got more body parts. They're the ones that are going to have a baby if... Even though the left says men can, that's horse hockey, they can't. But you see where I'm going with that, and they, 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 they're more prone to need health care. So there was a community rating uh, system that allowed insurers to charge women more than men, charge um, older people more than younger people. Well, there was no limit on that before Obamacare. They tend to want an old person to a young person. What Obamacare did... As a way to get the young people in, as they changed the community rating uh, to limit it to three to one. Three to one was the idea. So you can only charge an old person three times what you charge a young person, not ten times, which is the way it was in the old days. Those are just some of the little nuances that were included in the bill, in the legislation, as well as Medicaid expansion. We're coming right back with the final segment here on Middays in the Element Well Studio. It's so awesome! Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Come on! Let's get on with the show! On Super Talk Mississippi. Muddy Waters, thanks for joining us on Middays in the Element Well Studios. Don't know if it's by design, says Kevin in Monticello, or not, but I don't see how we won't be able to avoid socialized health care. We are already almost to the point of not being able to uh, to it now and can't afford not to have it. Uh, yeah, I don't know if it's by design either. I mean, there's certainly people in this country that, that believe there should be no profit in health care. Uh, as there are in some um, really strongly socialized environments, medicine environments in some countries that believe there should not be. And then there's some countries where, like Spain is an example, I've I've read about that. It's terrible what's going on there. You work for the government. Healthcare professionals, like all doctors, make 75000 a year. It doesn't matter if you're some, you know, one in the country specialist that can only do, and there are, you know that. There are certain positions like that, and they command higher pay. It's a demand and supply deal. One person can do. We have a couple here at UMC that do, like, the liver transplant stuff that are highly specialized, and they could go anywhere, honestly, and make more money. But they're here. That's an example. You know, as you move up the chain, like in any profession, and your skills are more rare, of course, that's going to pay more. It's the way it ought to be. What it's the way it works in just about any industry. Yeah. What What did Lionel Messi just get his, uh, it, with Miami? He passed up on a billion dollars a year. A billion. From Saudi Arabia, right? They oh, were going to yeah. pay him a billion. 
to kick a soccer ball. A billion! You could add up all the pay for the Fortune CEOs and not get to a billion. When you look at just the cash compensation, I mean, that's how crazy things are. But I mean, look at baseball. The five-tool player. It's so rare to have someone that has all five tools. Yep. Therefore, they're valued pretty highly. They get paid uh, accordingly. That's absolutely right. So, yeah, so this is the the, the refrain that always uh, kind of um, makes me laugh, I guess I would say, a little bit under my breath is, I don't want the government in my health care, but don't take away my Medicare. You've, you've heard that. You? Oh, yeah. I love my Medicare. My, some of my old wealthy friends that are retired and they're forced to be on Medicare because they can't get insurance any other way, um, they'll say, oh, I love socialized medicine. And I'll say, yeah, because I'm paying for your Medicare. What? Just the truth. Um, but in, So if you look at the number of people on Medicare, the number of people on Medicaid, the number of people on TRICARE, and then the number of people on Obamacare, yeah, that's more. If you just think about it from an insurance perspective, that's more than private coverage. That's about half and half. But it's, it's just now starting to eclipse the number on private coverage. And as the population ages, that's going to continue to increase. Gary from Nettleton says, what about the guy making 19300 and gets a dollar uh, per hour raise? Who would want that raise? So, again, uh, just explaining, not defending. I wrote lots of articles through the years of, about the problems with the Affordable Care Act and alternatives to it. I am not a fan, not a proponent. But here was the idea. The idea was solid. Okay, if you make too much to qualify for Medicaid, then you go to the exchanges and you buy subsidized coverage. And in the, in the early days, until the Inflation Reduction Act, I've talked about this on the show many times, actually it was until the American Rescue Plan, which made this temporary, this situation I'm about to describe, but the Inflation Reduction Act made it permanent, it was 2% of your income, 2%. So you literally had people that were paying $100 a year for coverage in the exchanges. Literally. Could have been on Medicaid at zero in an expansion state. But now we've got zero-cost premiums if your income in the exchanges, because of the subsidies, if your income is less than 150%. I've talked about this on the air and offered that as an alternative in our state to expanding Medicaid because able-bodied adults would qualify for that. Now, the gotcha is they still have an out-of-pocket cost. You still have deductibles and co-pays, but those are limited to $3,000 a year. Now, granted, a person making $20,000 a year can't afford $3,000 a year for their co-pays and deductibles. So maybe there's something we could do there that would keep them off the Medicaid rolls. No matter what, it's still welfare. I mean, if you object to welfare, you would object to the exchanges. So then the question is, what do you do with the blind and disabled that need health care? We just tell them, sorry, you just don't get any care? Because there's a limit to a lot of people. They have disabilities or they're blind and they're limited to their income potential. What should we do as a society? Kick them to the street? I think that's what Thomas wants to do. Correct me if I'm wrong, Thomas. Um, So, Thomas, I'm waiting for you. You asked me why I don't decry Medicaid expansion. 
I'm going to explain tomorrow uh, kind of where I stand on that, what I think is uh, the right approach there, and it's not necessarily Medicaid expansion. I'm still waiting for you to call for the end of Mississippi's participation in existing base Medicaid. Let's tell those blind people, the disabled people, the old people, the nursing homes, you're out. We ain't paying anymore. We're coming back tomorrow. Until then, stay safe and God bless. A Super Talk Mississippi media production.